it's wonderful to see so many old friends. It's, it's, uh, I, uh, you know, because of working at the school for so many years, uh, this is so much my home. And it's, it's, I feel like a kid talking to my parents and relatives and everything right now. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so um <coughs> I want to start by a story that sounds like it has nothing to do with this. Uh, but so there was a, um, a biology teacher who asks his students to uh, define a mammal. And so the one kid raises his hand and he says, well, mammals have uh, hair and they have milk. And the teacher says, oh, good. So what you're telling me is a coconut is a mammal. Um, <laughs> and so what's the problem <laughs> with this kid's definition? Uh, anyone want to? Yes, what? He was incomplete, okay? Um, and so on one hand, he wasn't going high enough. You know, he, he, he missed the big picture. He didn't bother to tell you the big picture because uh, if he had set started with a mammal is an animal that has hair and milk, then, okay, that would have worked. But the other problem with his answer was that his terms were ambiguous because hair... Doesn't and milk don't necessarily mean mammalian hair and milk. Uh, and so, so the reason I started out with that story is that when we talk about marriage, love, sex, chastity, nature, whatever, we are speaking a different language than our culture is speaking, and we're using the same words to do it. And so th that is why our conversations go either like this or like that, <laughs> you know. Um, because when I say marriage, I mean one thing. And when, you know, my gay friends say marriage, they mean another. And, and unfortunately, what has happened is in the church, most of us get confused about what belongs where in these definitions. So, so what I wanted mostly to do today is to develop the, the different paradigms um, to look at what these words mean and then what is the unifying principle that makes everything hang together by our culture's definitions and then make everything hang together by our church's understanding. So going first with marriage, you know, the people who are in the marriage debates now, like the Christians, um, or not just the Christians, the Jews, the Muslims, anybody who um, holds to a relatively traditional understanding of marriage, they're always saying, like, define marriage. You know, how can I say, you know, this person or that person should have the right to marry when I don't know what marriage is? Uh, you know, it's like saying softball players have a right to play baseball. Like, well, yeah, but softball's not baseball. And so to add a softball into a baseball game is changing baseball. So, um, so marriage 
is actually pretty hard to define if you don't define it in the traditional sense. Uh, and so anyone, I mean, what do you think it means in our culture? In our culture. Okay. Um, yeah, and there, I forget who the person was, but somebody on the same-sex marriage part of, of it said something like, you know, it's your main, it's your main emotional commitment to an adult. Uh, and, and when they were asked, they said, well, sex, you probably have sex as part of it, but not necessarily. And it's like, well, in the church we would say that too, but we mean that in a very different reason, you know, because of like you have married couples who, looking for that which is higher, eschew the, the sexual part of, of their union, but that is quite different from what our culture is saying. So I think most of us, oops, would be willing to go yeah, with some kind of a definition such as a sexual union of love between two people. And that's more or less what our culture currently says. But you know, the minute they legalized uh, same-sex marriage, there were already people saying, why does it have to be only two? You know, what if a man and another man and a woman love each other? What if a man and a man and a man love each other? And you know, and the people who believe in just two people in a marriage are like, well, obviously not. And it's like, why not? What's obvious about that? You know, and so anyway, so, but this is, I would say, the vast majority of our culture would go with a definition like this right now. You all more or less agree with that? Okay, so what's love? Okay, so I, mean, I think in specifically in this context, I think we could say, you know, it's a strong emotion, and in this particular context, you know, uh, sexual in nature. But there's also an understanding within our culture that it's a strong desire to do somebody good. Right? I'm running out of room, but for the beloved, okay? Um, but you know, the thing with, with this part of it, the, the strong emotion, have you ever really paid any attention to love songs? And in listening to a love song, did you ever notice how many of the lyrics are about how you make me feel? You know, and so that strong emotional love is much more than we realize about like, oh wow, I just feel so wonderful when I'm around you. Well, that's great. Well, what when I don't feel so wonderful around you, what does that do to my love? And then, you know, the strong desire to do good for a person, that's wonderful. 
But it begs the question of what is good? What is good for a person? Now, it's no secret, of, as heavy as I am, that I have trouble with, you know, with eating too much. So, and I love to bake. And everybody in my family loves to bake. And if I had a friend who liked to bake with me, and we baked, you know, every night, and we made cheesecakes and chocolate chip cookies and fudge and everything, and we sat down and we ate them together, is that person doing me good, even though they love me? And they might really, you know, they might really care for me. They might be willing to die for me. But if at the core of our relationship is something that even if I like it is harming me and or the other person, are they doing me good? Am I doing them good? And that's going to come up you know, as we go into the question of same-sex marriage and transgender issues and all, all those different kinds of things. You know, so because, and I think this is an important thing to say here, is like you are not at all required to look at a same-sex couple and say, you guys don't really love each other. They may love each other more than, than I love anybody in my life. It's possible. But the, but the question is, is, is there something in your relationship that is harmful? And when, there, when there's a lot of good in a relationship, sometimes it masks what's bad. You know, like if I did have a friend that would do anything for me and I'd do anything for her or him, and we were, you know, baking cheesecakes and chocolate chip cookies and fudge every night and eating it and eating it and eating it, Our, that which is good about our love should look at that and go, this is something that is harmful. This is something that needs to change. And that is not negating that there's a lot of good there. And so I think that's really important because it's not for us to judge people who's, you know, who have same-sex attractions, who believe that they're men when they're women and vice versa. Uh, there may be lots and lots and lots of good there. So the question, you know, isn't like, well, you're just all wrong and I'm just all right and you just have to come to my way of thinking and everything's going to be wonderful. It's like, no, we need to celebrate what's good anywhere we can find it. You know, and we need to repent of everything that's bad in us. You know, and because if we are going to go and talk to somebody and tell them things that mean that if they accept them, they're going to have to tear up a huge part of their life. They had better believe that we care about them. And we had better have de demonstrated that in our lives. And part of my caring about other people is having the honesty to address all the junk in my own life. So, okay. So then, sex in the sense of, uh, well, as far as male and female, um, you know, you hear a lot of this, you know, like there are intersex people, okay, as opposed to, um, you know, people who identify with a different gender. So intersex is, is a biological condition. Um, and so people 
people talk about that and say, well, there's this biological condition, so there's no, there really isn't just male and female. There's, you know, there's this huge continuum. Um, and that is, that's partly true, but, but it's obscuring something. Um, anybody know what a bimodal distribution is? Okay, yay, got someone who knows what it is. Okay, so say this is height. And this is um, men's height. And this is women's height. And nobody here, I, I think, is under the impression that on average, women are as tall as men, right? We all know that on average, men are taller than women. But we also know that any given man might be shorter than any given woman, okay? So to look at this and say, there's no difference between men and women in terms of height. Well, that's not true. And so there is, so this is a, you know, a typical bimodal distribution. When it comes to sex in terms of, you know, your Y chromosome and X chromosome, like your, whether a person is a, a man or a woman, you have what is called a, uh, it's a modified uh, bimodal distribution because it's like you've basically got women, you've got men, and, and you have some people in the middle, you know. And so if, if there is a person in that middle, there's not a lot of people in that middle, and it doesn't, so you, ca you, can't, you can't honestly look at this and say, you know, there, there's not men and women, there's just this, uh, there's just this continuum. It's not a continuum, it's a modified bimodal distribution. And for those people who are in here, you know, who for whatever reason, because they've got an extra chromosome or because, um, you know, certain hormonal things didn't kick on for whatever reason they didn't kick on, they can be great saints of God by struggling with what they have to struggle with, just like anybody else can be a great saint of God by struggling with whatever they have to struggle with. So if you have homosexual desire and you struggle with it and offer that up to God as a sacrifice, God bless you. More power to you. If, if you were born intersex, same thing. If you are a man who thinks you're a woman or a woman who thinks you're a man, God bless you. You can take that and you can offer that up to God. Uh, but anyway, though, just just to be clear on that, because you will he hear people making this argument, um, and it's a, it's a disingenuous argument. Um, okay. Now, and then as far as the sexual act, you know, an interesting thing in our culture is that you, the, the act um, of sex is either like lifted up like so high as to try to make it a god, you know, like it's the most amazing, most wonderful thing that, or 
it becomes like bestialized and then demonized, you know, to the point like with the porn is at the point where where porn artists and porn um, producers are saying we shouldn't let children see this. I mean, this is the craziness that we've gotten to. Um, you know, and that is because when you try to make anything into a god, it's going to become a demon, you know, because only God can be God, and anything else that I try to raise to that level is going to come down. Um, so anyway, so, and, and then I wanted to address the word homosexual. That is a neologism, uh, meaning that it's an, you know, a relatively newly coined word. It was coined in the 1800s. And up till then, you know, sexual acts had their, their names. Their, you know, the, the, the sexual act between a man and a woman is coitus. Um, there were names for all the various different other acts that were, you know, sexual in nature in some way. So why does it matter that you call something what you call it? That you call, like, instead of talking about the various homosexual acts by their particular, and, and they need not necessarily be homosexual, you know? Like, I mean, anal sex can be between a man and a woman, and a married man and a woman, and it's still against what God has given us to, to be, to, of, of purity and love. Um, but why does it matter that you use that name? Well, I'll give you, you know, sort of a silly illustration, but what is this? This is a key. What is this? This is a lock. Together, it's a locking mechanism. This is not a hetero locking mechanism. And if I can find another key. I'm going to find a key faster than I can find my keys. <laughs> uh, I got it. Okay. And this is not a homo-locking mechanism. See? And to call this a hetero-locking mechanism is to misunderstand what a lock is. And by, by saying that, I make the lock about a certain action as opposed to what the action does, what the action is for. And so when I use the word, and I am not advocating that you stop using the word homosexual around homosexuals or, or what, I mean, sometimes they don't even like that word, but, but you don't want to necessarily go back to words like palatio and, you know, I mean, but, but the point is, is, the very fact that we have those words in our language now is equating two actions that can't be equated. You know, for me to call, to call this a hetero-locking mechanism and this a homo-locking mechanism is to equate two things that can't be equated. And one is a perversion of the other. And I don't mean that as an insult, but I mean it in the, 
in, in the original understanding of the word of perversion is, you know, turning something aside from what it was meant to be. And so by using the word homosexual, we are comparing an act, a God-given act, and a perversion of that act, and saying that they're two kinds of the same thing. And it's, and I think just by this sort of silly illustration, it shows how th it, that isn't logical. It doesn't make sense. Okay, so, so let's see. I don't know what to put down there. Uh, uh, okay, so anyway, so chastity is a word that, you know, you ask a lot of young kids, they've not even ever heard this word. It is not a word we say very much anymore in our culture. Um, but, you know, so chastity, I would say in English in general, is a word that is negatively defined. And meaning by that, it's defined in terms of what you're not doing, okay? So like, if you're not married, you're not having sex, period. If you are married, you're having sex only with your spouse, and if you're very serious about traditional Christian teaching, you know, only actual coitus, not the variety of other things that the church has condemned for centuries. Um, so, so by that definition, if you don't cheat on your wife, but you beat her 10 times a day, you're still chaste. Okay. So, um, so chastity is basically, it's what you're not doing, okay. Um, so give me a minute when I get over here and, and why I bothered to say that. Um, now the reason I brought in the word nature is how often do you hear someone say like, I was born this way. Okay, I'm, I am naturally homosexual. I am naturally transgender. I have always felt like a man or a boy trapped in a, in a, in a female body. That may be true. But you know what? I was born with a really nasty temper. And that doesn't make that okay. I was born much more... Uh, genetically likely to get fat than my brothers and my sister, but that doesn't excuse the fact that I eat too much. You know, and so to say that something is natural, it's like what you're doing is like you are negating the whole question of, okay, natural, fine, but is it good? Is it helpful? Um, so, so nature is basically what happens in nature. And so therefore, if I am for whatever reason inclined to homosexual thoughts or to think that I'm a man, then that must be perfectly fine. Uh, uh, by the way, the way I understand it, the, the, the scientific literature is really pretty clear that at least with men, I think with women it's not quite as clear, but with men, there is definitely a genetic um, uh, component 
You know, so like if you have identical twins and one is gay, like there's about a 20% chance that the other twin is going to be gay. But if they're fraternal twins, it's, it's much less. But that by itself proves that it's not just genetic. Because if it were just genetic and one was gay, the other would be gay. You know, they're, they're so, so again, it's like, you know, I picked up the genetic disposition to be fat from my parents, <laughs> but I didn't, I still have to deal with that. I still have to, um, you know, do something or not do something, um, you know, and, you know, I think maybe one of my other siblings picked that up, but they exercise more than I and they eat more reasonably than I and, you know, so, okay. So, the unifying principle here, well, what do you think? I mean, what holds all this together as a way of looking at life? What is it that uh, is, is the good that people think of, you know, I want to do good for somebody, you know, and in this context, do you have any idea what the overall idea of what's good for a person seems to be? Desire, and in particular, what I would say here is pleasure. And these aren't necessarily bad pleasures at all. And there's nothing inherently wrong with eating a chocolate chip cookie. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with sex. And for that matter, you know, you can be homo uh, heterosexual and still be very much living in this way of looking at the world. And that's an important thing to understand because this, where we are as a culture is the logical result of what we as a culture have believed for a very long time. You know, um, you know, if love is a sexual union, I mean, if marriage is a sexual union of love between two people and love is about pleasure, and I desire to do you good, and the good, the biggest good I can do you is make you happy, then why not marry a person of the same sex? Um, you know, so, so anyone who has read the Fathers of the Church knows that pleasure should be raising like a big red flag. Okay, because the, the fathers of the church are always talking, they're so deeply suspicious of pleasure. And a lot of people take that and, and wrongly assume that the, the church is a bunch of killjoys. You know, the, the fathers of the church are all killjoys. They want to try to make sure that you have as little fun as possible. Um, yet, we believe in a God at whose right hand is pleasure evermore, right? So the fathers, it's not that they're against pleasure per se. It's that they're against pleasure as a unifying principle of life. <laughs> and so what, what I want to look at here then is some of the things of how the church looks at these things. So what are... What are some of the ways the church looks at marriage? Yes? Okay, a sacred bond between two people of God. Okay. 
and let us say here a man and a woman. Okay, so uh, um, some of you know uh, Bishop Basil. Uh, we were at a, a wedding where he was, and he gave the, a, a little talk afterward. And he said, a marriage without God is like a donut. There's, there's a hole in the middle. <laughs> so, um, okay, so there's that. It's a mystery, okay? Yeah, it's a mystery how <laughs> how your wife has put up with you all these years. I mean, it's <laughs> where are you, Jan? I did a good one for you there. Right there, okay, no, but anyway, but you know, like actually, the word the word um, mysterion is what got translated into Latin as sacrament. Yeah, so. So it's a mystery, it's a sacrament, and you know what's mysterious about that is like God takes things of the flesh and uses them to bring forth things of the spirit. You know, so like he takes bread and wine and makes that his body and blood. He takes water and makes it life to us in chrism and makes that life to us. And he takes in marriage the bodily union of a man and a woman and it makes it life creating. And that is astonishing. And and not just physically life creating, but but spiritually life creating. So much so that marriage is the icon of Christ and the church. He is the bridegroom. And what is the icon of Christ the bridegroom? Who knows what that icon is? Priests aren't allowed to answer. <laughs> but Or deacons either. Uh, no, that's a good guess, but no. Do you know? I bet you you do know, Elsa. The witch? For bridegroom matins? And what's the icon that comes out at bridegroom matins? Do you remember? What's happening during bridegroom's matins? What, what are we remembering is, ha is happening? It's the beginning of Holy Week, so it's the beginning of what? The passion of faith. Yes, this is this is yeah. Christ with the crown of thorns, and and the the um, reed, and you know, and I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. And so Christ, the bridegroom. The he's the icon. Marriage is the icon of Christ in the church because the bride. The bridegroom loves his wife with, with his whole life. It's a self-sacrificing, joyful, life-giving love. And the wife is to respond to that with you know, the appropriate love for one who does that. Um, 
Now, of course, that doesn't mean the woman gets out of self-sacrificing, uh, joyful, life-giving love. Uh, I remember as a kid, I was like in high school, and you know the the passage where it was talking about the you know uh, women be you know submissive to your husbands and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and you know I was your typical you know semi you know feminist type of and I, I was like that's not fair you know the, the the women I mean they have to obey and the the men just have to love. And, and my teacher, you know, was like, you know, they, they have to love like Christ did, like with their whole life. I'm like, oh, yeah. That's, you know, and it's like I had no idea what that actually meant. Um, because if you really meant, if you're really loving your wives like Christ loved the church, you're saints. <laughs> um, and that is what you need to aspire to. And then women, if we obey with the obedience of the Theotokos, of her humility and her willingness to rip up her life <laughs> and possibly be stoned, then we're saints too. <laughs> um, but that, that's where we're going. That's what we're supposed to be like. Um, okay, so there's a lot of other things you can say there. I don't have enough room. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, marriage has, throughout the centuries, uh, and legally in the United States until very, very, very recently, um, it was understood that it was between a man and a woman. It was consummated by the coitus, the sexual act between a man and a woman, the only truly sexual act. Um, it's given for companionship and procreation. Um, and you know it's such an integral part of marriage that the only reason Christ gives for divorce is adultery. Okay, so by having a, a sexual union outside of your marriage, you have ripped your marriage apart. And so that is, in in the church there are other reasons allowed, but in the Bible that's the only one Christ gives. Okay, so love. What is love? Or the better ask question to ask first is who is love? Well, God is love. And Jesus Christ, who is God, what did he tell us about love? He said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Okay, so it is to give your life for the other. even if they hate you. And you don't really know how strong your love is until they do hate you. I was just telling somebody, my, my brother who was a priest and who was at the Belamond uh, learning Arabic and Byzantine chant got to know a lot of the Lebanese and Syrian clerics. And there was a, uh, a priest, Father Fadi, who shortly before ISIS took over, when things were already going south, but hadn't gone that far south yet, Father Fadi was very well loved by Muslims and Christians alike. So whenever there were problems, they would you know, have him mediate uh, because everybody trusted him. Um, 
so there was a, a Christian physician uh, who was um, who was kidnapped and held for ransom. And so Father Fadi was going back and forth, you know. And when they had decided upon a ransom, he took the father of the the physician with him. And I don't remember what happened to the physician and the father, but when they came with the money, they took Father Fadi, and they tortured him like unspeakably. And when they found his body, his hand was in the, the priest's blessing position. So, like, he died blessing the people who, you know, murdered him unspeakably. And that's love. So, um, okay. So, sex in terms of the... Uh, the act, it's, it's one of, it is a defining act of marriage. It's not the only one, uh, but it is certainly, you know, such that in the Catholic Church, you can annul a marriage where it, that had not been consummated. Uh, we don't have annulment per se, you know, but, but, but certainly th this has always been considered a defining act of marriage. Um, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the word to know, the, the, the verb to know, is used um, of sexual relationships. Uh, you know, like, you know, uh, Adam did not know Eve until after the fall, and the, uh, Joseph never knew Mary. Uh, so, you know, because of the, because it is, marriage and the sexual act were meant to be naked and unashamed <laughs> in front of the other person. Um, and, you know, and in our fallenness, how, how much even more difficult that is, and to have that love for another that you can see all their nakedness and yet still give your life for them. It is, it's procreative, it's life-giving. Uh, there is this really remarkable passage in St. John Chrysostom um, where he talks about that, you know, the union of the man and his wife is like the relationship of God the Father and God the Son in that God the Father is, um, is in authority, but he's in authority of the one who is fully his equal. And then he goes on and he says, and then the child, the union of that love, is like the, re the relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's just like this really short little paragraph, and that's super easy to get heretical on really quick. So, like, I don't want to go there. <laughs> uh, my uh, great ambition in life is to not end up on the list of heretics at, you know, on uh, Triumph of Orthodoxy Sunday. So, um, so I'm not, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but, but what I do, th why I do think that's really important to mention, is that, you know, we are made in the image of God, and there is a created, uh, uh, 
very faint image of that relationship of love in the Trinity. And so to have sex with somebody with no intention of allowing life to grow is, is effacing love. It, it's putting love out of the picture and saying, you know, that love's not important. Um, and because love's not just about me and the other person. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I thought the most romantic thing um, uh, uh, possible would be the, to elope. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I would love this guy so much and he'd love me so much that nothing else would matter and we would go off to, I never wanted to go off to Las Vegas, but somewhere, you know, somewhere romantic. But you know what? There is no me and you. <laughs> I mean, what if people are going to elope, what about the parents that raised them for 18 years or 20 years or in these days 30 or 40 years, you know? Um, <laughs> you know, and... And what's that going to do to their relationship, the relationship of the grandparents to the kids that you're going to have when you started off by saying to your parents, you don't matter. You know, and so to, to think that there can be just me and one other person is like to ignore reality. And you marry, even if you never see your in-laws, you're married to them, you know, because your, your spouse carries, you know, your, your in-laws' culture with them. And whether you have a relationship with them or not, you still have a relationship. If you never see them, you have a broken relationship. But it's still a relationship. Uh, okay. So, um, now... So there's a lot of really wonderful things about sex that the fathers say. But what you will very often, I mean, this is more like in the services of marriage, and you know, there's all these wonderful things. But like when you're reading the, um, the fathers of the church, they're usually reminding you that sex is something we share with animals. Okay, so the sexual act, it was not originally intended to be how we procreate. And the fathers never tire of telling us that we share this with horses and dogs and, you know, whatever other animals. So it is a high thing, but it's also a low thing. And see, that's what happens over here is like people see the highness, they see the lowness, they have nothing to hold them together. So you try for the highness and usually it falls apart or you just live sort of a happy life, you know, in the world, which is sort of like taking a human being and making him the, the head of a troop of monkeys. And he's a happy monkey troop leader, but that's not what we are made to be. So the best thing that can happen to us is to be a happy monkey troop leader if we're here, when what God wants us to be is people made and living in the image of, of Christ, in the likeness of, of Christ. Um, so anyway, so there is this lowness and this highness, and it's held together by that joyful, self-sacrificing love, that humble love that goes, I know that this act is the act that we share with the animals. I know this is my fleshiness, but by giving this up, 
humbly, joyfully, sacrificially, then it raises it and makes it capable of carrying the image of Christ and his church. Um, now, sex is a property of the person. Um, you know, we, we live in a time where our culture is trying to make men into women. You know, we, we love the feminine virtues and we don't love the masculine virtues very much. And we have lost the idea of the man as the leader and protector. But you know, if a man wasn't made to lead and protect, what was he made to do? You know, because, you know, th there have been studies. Um, there is a huge difference between men and women in terms of their orientation towards things or towards people. And men are much more oriented on average towards things, and women are much more oriented on average towards uh, people, which is why you're, no matter what you do, no matter what Google tries to do, those of you who know what I'm talking about with James Damore, but you're always going to have more men wanting to be engineers. <laughs> you're always going to have more women wanting to be nurses. And you know, and it's hard to be a leader when you're super involved in caring about other people's emotions. And I know this because I'm an abbess, and I've got ten other women whose emotions I'm dealing with every day. <laughs> and it's like, it's hard because like I'm always going like, oh, she's going to be so upset, you know, when I do this, you know, and then sister so and so is going to think that sister such and such is got to me and you know and it's like it's hard for people who are very very other oriented in that kind of a way to lead but it is a bimodal distribution i am not saying that no woman can lead successfully and no man can be an incredibly wonderful nurse of course they can but again it's that thing with the bimodal distributions um you know to look at that and go like well, there's no difference in height between men and women because we have short men and tall women. Of course we do. But of course there's a difference in height. And the difference in terms of um, that re, uh, whether you're people-oriented or, um, or um, thing-oriented is huge. That, that's a very, very huge difference. Um, and yet, we have women saints who were empresses you know, so, and we have many male saints, you know, the monastics in particular, who have, you know, the feminine virtues, you know, in, in great abundance. So, God doesn't make a caricature of a man and a caricature of a woman and say, you have to, you know, you have to fit this, you have to fit that. But, there certainly are feminine, you know, virtues that come more naturally to women and, and virtues that come more naturally to men. Um, some months back, there was a, uh, a tornado in, like, you know, Kansas or somewhere in the, in the Midwest. Um, and there was a, um, it, like, came out of nowhere and, like, they didn't have time, you know, to, like, um, evacuate everybody. 
Um, and so there was this, uh, the bank in this little town, uh, they had, you know, a vault like a bank will have. And the vault was like the only safe place. So, but you had to lock the door from the outside. And if they didn't lock the door, it wouldn't be safe. I'm not trying to make a, a pun on safe and safe. <laughs> but, you know, but it, um, so somebody had to stay outside and lock it. And it was the president of the bank who did. And then he went down to the basement and prepared to die. So like he, I mean, so he said goodbye to everybody because he wasn't expecting to survive. But he did, you know, by God's grace, he survived. And they asked him later, like, why did you do that? And he said, we're a family. I'm the father of the family. It's my place. And men, our culture is trying to take that away from you, and that is a shame. You know, because that a man is meant to lead and protect. And there's this, um, there, have any of you heard this term, compensatory masculinity? So what compensatory masculinity is, is like, if you don't let men be men by leading and protecting, they will find some way to be men. And usually it's by joining a gang, it's by raping, it's by, you know, whatever. It's like, I'm going to prove my power. Whereas the power that God gave men is to lead and to protect. And we are really harming our culture by losing sight of that. And yet, so, uh, and again, it's like, so if men lead, well, what are women? You know, women are nothing. And it's like, well, who's the greatest saint in the church? The Theotokos. She was not an apostle. She would never have been a bishop. You know, but again, we've lost this idea of, you know, leading doesn't mean superiority. And, you know, leading as a Christian needs to be a service. Uh, obeying needs to be a service. You know, and if I am leading and I'm doing it, you know, out of my own desire to aggrandize myself, you know, I'm going to go to hell because that's what hell is. And if I am a washerwoman and I am doing that for the glory of God and I go to heaven and I'm going to hear him say, well done, you good and faithful servant, what more do I want? You know. So, okay. Um, so nature... We certainly do have the concept of fallen nature. So, like, it is natural for, you know, if a woman is dressed a certain way, women, it is natural for men to have trouble with that, okay? It is. <laughs> and does that mean it's okay for them to think things and do things they shouldn't? No. But it's foolish <laughs> to dress in a certain way because the way fallen nature is that there are certain things that are, you know, a, a man is uh, sexually stimulated visually and you dress in a certain way and whether you mean to or not, you are sending a signal. You are. Um, 
so there is that idea of you know natural in terms of fallen human nature, but there's also nature in terms of what nature as God intended it. What did I do with? Oh, there they are. <laughs> so, so there's nature as God intended it, and then the things I need to do to get back to that. So it is natural to pray, to fast, although I have trouble with that one, to give alms. Those are natural because those are what the way we're meant to be um, and what helps us get back to the way God made us. Um, now, the unifying principle here that you might guess because I've said it several times one way or another is joyful, self-sacrificing, life-giving love. And who, who is the epitome of this? Christ. God is love. Christ came and showed us that love. And that's what we're called to do. So by giving up my distorted image of me so that I can love God and love my neighbor joyfully, self-sacrificingly, and giving life, I can finally become me. Okay. You need to, like, take a breath. Am I killing you all here? I don't mean to. So, uh, okay. So... Then the next thing that I wanted, you know, a couple of things that I wanted to look at. Um, can I erase this at this point? Or okay, um, or maybe I'll just write. I'll, okay, I'll, I can just do a little bit in between here. Oh, please, please. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah. So, oh, thank you. So St. John of the Ladder defines the chaste monk as, um, he says that the, the chaste monk burns with a, with, in, uh, okay, let me try again. Um, in the chaste monk, he burns up earthly love with divine love. Now, he was talking about monks, so I would assume if he were talking to a married person, I would assume he would say something like transforms earthly love with divine love. And, you know, and the importance of that is chastity isn't a lack of something. Chastity is this amazing, strong, burning virtue of love. And the chaste monk or the chaste unmarried person or the chaste married person is burning with this divine love that cannot bear to hurt another person, let alone the person they in theory love the most. Okay, so that's, 
that is what chastity is. Chastity is a strong, strong, beautiful thing. I'm g really glad you brought that up. Okay, thank you. Um, so now, one thing that I that I want to talk about too, um, and this is something I pulled straight out of C.S. Lewis, uh, and and that is, um, you know, so there's sort of the question of like, so what is doing? What is the good for a person, and how do you know that something is is good, is in, intact, in right relationship everywhere. And so uh, C.S. Lewis uses this image of a, um, what do you call a group of ships? Like uh, there's a flotilla, a cordon, or, but there's some other word. Fleet, okay, thank you. So, there, so there's a, a fleet of ships that are, they're, they're going somewhere, all right? This is like a merchant marine, and they're, they're all going somewhere. So they have to be in good condition three ways. They have to be in good condition internally and in relationship to each other and to their ultimate goal. So like, you know, if my engine of my ship is uh, within inches of blowing up. This is not a good thing, right? So, so my everything within my ship has to be in good shape, or I can't sail where I need to sail. But like, say that my, um, you know, everything's fine in my ship and everything's fine in your ship. But I wasn't paying attention and I rammed you. Um, well. Pretty soon, <laughs> our relationship is hurt, and then we're going to get hurt internally too, right? Because I can't ram you without messing you up internally. Um, so, or maybe, you know, your ship and my ship are friends, and we just decide to go off and do something else, and that puts a hole in, <laughs> in the fleet. Um, and again, that comes back to the whole idea of me and you. You know, me and you without the rest of us puts a hole in the fleet. It's, it's not kind. Um, but so, okay, so say, you know, we're all in inter internally excellent condition and we're all agreed and everything's wonderful and we have very successfully uh, sailed to France, except that the owner of the fleet had told us to go to Norway. So we're still not in good shape. And in our culture, we get this. We sort of get this, but we forget that there's a God and that we don't, I don't own my ship. And it's not for me to decide which ship I like and which ship I don't and which ships I want to spend most of my time around and which ships that I don't want anything to do with. You know, like I'm, some of you have been around when I've used this illustration, but you know, in a body, you don't, you know, the, the liver and the heart can't decide, like, we don't want anything to do with the rest of you, so we're just going to go and be a liver-heart body. Y you can't. You'll die. You know, and then the body's going to die. Um, so so this, this is something that, I, you know, I want to get back to when we, you know, talk about, and not only now talk about, but 
whenever we're thinking in terms of the things that our culture is telling us about same-sex marriage or transgender or what, it's like, what's it doing to you internally? What's it doing to you, the relationships with other people? And what's it doing to your relationship with God? And if you, if you aren't looking at it that way, you're, you're missing the, the big picture. Okay, so now there's another thing that I wanted to talk about, uh, which is um, the, the three parts of the soul. I am going to try to tie all this together, I promise. So, um, okay. I'm going to do a little bit of erasing here. So this is an, uh, at least as old as Plato, but it is something that the, um, the fathers of the church, uh, particularly the Eastern fathers, have uh, taken up. Anybody know what the three powers of the soul are? Okay, the noose is the predominant power, or should be. <laughs> what are the others? Okay, so to give them easier names than they usually get, there's the desiring power, and then there is the angering power. Okay, so the noose is the eye of the soul. It's like the mind of the heart. I'm assuming most of you know that know this term, but if you don't, first of all, it's not this noose, right? Okay, it's uh, it's a Greek word, um, and uh, you know, I'll tell you a story that many of you probably know. <laughs> Um, because it was in relation to somebody uh, from this parish. Uh, I won't embarrass them by saying who their name is, what their names are, but, but basically there was a, a, a little boy who was about three years old, and his father wasn't orthodox, and therefore was not going to communion, and it just hurt that little boy's heart because like he knew that that was where life is, right? The body and blood of Christ, that's where life is. But he's a three-year-old, right? I mean, he can't say that in any, you know, highly uh, impressive, intellectually impressive fashion. So what he said to his, fa his father was, Daddy needs the little spoon too. And You know, that's because his noose was pretty darn clear, as many children's are. He saw what mattered. You know, he saw that there is life in that chalice. And my father's not partaking of life, and that's pretty bad. And you don't have to be able to put that into eloquent words, or even into words at all. And so that's what the noose does. The noose just sees God in some way, sees the world the way God made it, or at least it's supposed to, until we start darkening our nooses. Okay, so that's the news. So the desiring power and the angering power, um, Sister Nona, uh, some of you may know her, but she put that in a way that I, I thought was, you know, it's very simple but very good. 
which is basically, you know, God gave us a desiring power to draw towards us the things that would help us love God and love each other, and gave us the angering power to thrust away the things that will keep us from loving God and loving each other. So, um, so imagine a chariot, okay? So the chariot is our soul. Uh, the noose is the chariot here. The desiring power and the angering power are the horses. Who all has seen Ben-Hur? <laughs> all right. So now he had four horses, but we're only going to do two horses in our chariot. And so um, when everything is going well, it's Charleston Heston in charge of that chariot, and it's amazing, and, and, and it's beautiful. And, and if you remember the book, I don't know how clear it was in the movie. I think it was clear in the movie, but, but it's very clear in the book, was that deep closeness between him and his horses. You know, and so that deep closeness inside us of everything working together such that the, the noose, we, we desire the good things, we're angry against the correct things, and everything's working together beautifully. But what happens when the charioteer eyesight starts going bad? Or what happens when the charioteer gets distracted? And, you know, there was, what was the guy's name, Masala or something like that? The bad guy, yeah. So, so what if it, you know, there I am, and there's Masala, you know, with his wheels, with those blady, horrible things going like that. I mean, and I'm going like, gee, I wonder what's for dinner today. You know, I'm doomed, right? You know, and, and so when my noose gets distracted, either by bad things or just by things that it's not the time to think about dinner when you're in the charioteer, when you're charioteer in, in the Ben-Hur race. Um, then the horses take over. You really do not want the horses in charge in the chariot race. You really don't. Not a good thing. Uh, and so, so what happens is the desiring power starts desiring things it ought not to desire, or it desires things that ought to desire at the wrong time. Like, when you're a horse in a chariot race, it is not the time to eat oats, okay, or cheesecake, or anything like that. And, and what happens here is that these two tend to go in lockstep. Whether I recognize it or not, the reason I'm angry is because I wanted something that I didn't get. You know, and so when, when my news you know, when my eyes start getting blinder and, and I start getting distracted, then my desiring power starts trying to take over and my angering power goes with it. And I'm just lucky not to end up under Masella's chariot wheels. And that's like the best I can hope for. Um, and that is why the fathers are so deeply suspicious of pleasure. Because when, when my unifying principle of life is pleasure, and even if it's listening to classical music, or, you know, good pleasures, but when that is my unifying principle of life, the horse is in charge, not 
the charioteer. And the best I can hope for is to get on the sidelines and eat all the oats I want. That's the best that can happen to me. And that's not what I should be to be a human being. So, okay. So this is the paradigm. These are the paradigms in which we need to understand the, the cultural questions of our day. And like I said, we, we're not supposed to be going around blaming, oh, if it weren't just for those homosexuals and, you know, and, and, and all those things that they're trying to have happen in, in, our, in, in our politics or the transgender who are, no. We've bought this lie as a culture for generations. I fall into this lie all the time because I grew up in this culture. It's hard not to fall into this lie. And you know, so we need to look at things, you know, in terms of what is good. You know, good God is good <laughs> and God is love. And God exemplifies that love by joyful, self sacrificing, life giving love. God Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So, um, so let's look, for example, at homosexuality, okay? Um, and, and go back to the image of, you know, how you're doing internally, how you're doing in relationship, and how you're doing in relationship to God, okay? Um, you know, I've done actually a fair bit of reading on this in the past several months because I want to be able to sound semi-intelligent on, on the subject. Um, but you know, there are certain things that like, they're so obvious if you ever stop to think about them, but like you're just not allowed to say these things in our culture. Now, homosexual acts or those same kind of acts in a relationship between a man and a woman, even married, they harm your body. And they're not good for your soul either. And forgive me being, you know, a little bit graphic here, but just to, you know, say something to make this super obvious. I knew a woman who was in Peace Corps, and, you know, one of the things that they did was teach basic um, hygiene. And one of the things they told people is like, if when you go to the bathroom, you, you wipe yourself to the back, not to the front. Those are your own germs. So what, I mean, when you start introducing, um, you know, the, the germs from areas that don't normally go together, Yes, of course, that's dangerous. And then, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, anal sex, which, you know, I read something interesting actually recently. Up until 2009, um, the, uh, uh, what, what's the, the Surgeon General said that, like, you know, and in all the various things, uh, they were saying that, you know, it is too risky. You just should not be doing this. And then there was a sea change, uh, you know, politically, not, uh, not in, you know, and they changed it to how to be safer about it. But, you know, anybody who has ever had 
uh, chronic problems with constipation knows that the anus and the rectum are delicate structures and there is no way that you can be involved in anal sex and not harm yourself and the other person. It, you can't. And this, the point here isn't to look at people and go, oh, you're disgusting people. Like You're not any more disgusting than I am. But it's like, if you love them, and I have no reason to believe you that you don't, not believe it that you don't, don't hurt You know, so, and then, you know, so so that the whole internal and relational thing, you know, those, I mean, I, you know, that sort of answers that part of it. But the other thing, too, in terms of our relationship with God is that, you know, pictures matter. And the picture of a man having a sexual relationship of some sort with a man or a woman having one with a woman is a picture of me preferring me, not preferring the other, preferring that which is like me instead of self-sacrificially, joyfully, life-giving, loving the other that is different. You know. And pictures really matter. You know, that is why um, you know, what you watch, what you listen to, you know, it affects how you think, even whether you know it or not. Um, now, I want to finish what I have to say with a story about my neighbor growing up. Um, I was just, was it you, Father, I was talking? Yeah, this isn't the story I wanted to tell, but it's a great story. Miss, Mr. Traster was like, he was in his 70s when I was a little tiny kid, and uh, he was the grandfather of the neighborhood. I mean, he was, you know, just a lovely, lovely man. And so whenever anything would go wrong, you know, you'd always go to Mr. Traster and climb on his lap and go, oh, Mr. Traster, oh, you know, whatever. And he'd pat you on the head and he'd go, the first hundred years are the hardest. Uh, <laughs> so, so he was this amazing, loving, but powerful man. You know, he was... He, he was uh, he was a skilled craftsman. Um, he could do. He was 96, and when he died, and just a few weeks before he died, he was still getting up on his uh, getting up on his house and cleaning out his gutters, and he was still making fences. And he was an amazing person. But what I want to tell you about him has to do with the fact that his wife was mentally ill. And before I go on, I don't want to demonize her. She was very nice to us. But she accused him of things that, like, he couldn't possibly have done. You know, I mean, he, she was mentally ill. Um, she screamed most nights. And you could hear her in our house. So, like, this man never got a good night's sleep. And he was... Uh, he was like in the, a reformed Protestant of some sort. He was, he was very, very seriously Christian. Um, his pastor, you know, at times, you know, would say to him, like, you know, I'm not saying 
get divorced, but, you know, why don't you separate? You know, I mean, take care of her, you know, but get a good night's sleep. And he said, she is my wife, and he would not do it. Now, personally, I think for most people, that would have been an honorable solution. You know, you take care of her, make sure she's okay, but live in a room somewhere else and get sleep. But not for Mr. Tracer, because he was a great man of God who, who lived joyful, self-sacrificing, life-giving love. And they were married 63 years. And he became this incredible, you know, <laughs> incarnation of everything that love is. And I have a personal experience of this because when I was six or seven years old, uh, well, okay, just one second. So he had a porch swing on his back porch. Uh, and in the summer, he would sleep in, in the afternoons, you know, get naps on his porch swing. And I was six or seven, and I thought it'd be really fun to wake him up with a water balloon. <laughs> so I did. And I know quite a few people who would not have murdered me on the spot, but I don't think I know anybody else who would have done what he did. I woke up this chronically sleep-deprived man from one of the few naps he ever got, and he smiled at me. You know, he didn't get the joy that he was hoping for as a young man, but his noose stayed looking at God. And because his noose stayed looking at God, he used his desiring power in the right way. And he used his angering power in the right way. And he was a man of joy. Because, you know, he couldn't take joy in his relationship with his wife the way he had hoped to. But he took joy in all the little things of life. You know, it was like he loved apple butter, you know. And so whenever there was apple butter, he would be like, hey, we have apple butter, you know. And, you know, and he was, uh, he used to make, like, athletic equipment for the, for the neighbor kids, you know. And he loved doing that, and he loved seeing us play on it. Because his life was a life of looking straight at God and humbly accepting the joys that God gave, you know, the gifts that God gave, accepting them as gifts. And his life was not easy. And I don't wish his life on any of you, because I think there are very, very few people who could rise to that kind of a challenge. But the fact of the matter is, is that if we live over here with this pleasure as our goal, in the end, 
all we'll have is ashes. If we live here, it's going to cost us a lot, and at the end, it's going to cost us everything we have. But this is the only thing worth having. And so the question is, what do we want? So again, you know, I, this, as you see, this wasn't a whole lot about specifics in terms of, you know, homosexuality, transgender, whatever. But it's a way to think about it. You know, and it's like, for example, for trans, you know, for, for people who struggle with, with uh, transgender issues, and I have a close family member who does it. So I'm saying this, you know, from a place of somebody I care about deeply. Um, you know, looking at terms in terms of, okay, internally, in relationship to others, and in relationship to God, you know, the huge question that nobody really talks about is like, if I feel that I'm a man, what makes that the greater reality than my physical reality, my physical body? And it's so interesting because in general, we're extremely materialistic in our culture, right? And we're very much like, you know, well, whatever you can explain by science. So why is it that in this particular thing, the little synapses that are firing here, there, and about are more real than my physical body? And, you know, if I take hormones to deepen my voice if I'm a woman and, you know, and there's very little um, study. You know, th this is like we're having this huge, um, this huge experiment going on in our culture now without anybody, you know, with very little, um, <laughs> very little study about it. But what little study they have shown, and it makes a lot of sense, is, you know, it is not good taking, you know, hormones. I mean, even for women, you know, when, when women have to take hormones when they're older, that has effects on their bodies. Why in the world would I not think that, you know, taking male hormones would not have an effect on my body? And if I cut my body, if I mutilate my body, well, first of all, you know, I'm never going to be a man, no matter what I do to my body, no matter how many hormones I take, because I'm going to have to keep taking them. And... I'm I'm never going to, you know, have truly the parts of a man. I never will. But the other thing is going back to the thing about CS Lewis, it's not my shit. And the thing is, you know, the only way to have the shit be mine is to totally give it up to God. You know, to say, okay, this is the way you told me to treat my ship. This is where I'm supposed to take the ship. This is how I'm supposed to treat, treat the other ships. And if I do that, then the ship can be mine because only then are my noose and my desiring power and my angering power all sane, all in right relationship to each other and to reality. And like I said, I, I have... 
you know, in terms of the transgender issue, that's not an issue to me. That is a person I love very deeply. And I don't want her to hurt herself. And I don't want to see the other people in her family hurt by that and not knowing how to react. And whatever we struggle with, we've lost in our culture the beauty of the struggle. You know, the beauty of saying, okay, this is a really hard thing for me. I don't know how I can get through one more hour of this, but God knows. And, I'll, and, and you know, the thing about the monks, right? Someone asked an abbot, what do you guys do all day? He goes, we fall and we get up, we fall and we get up, we fall and we get up. Whatever you're struggling with, you can do that. You can fall and get up, fall and get up. And there's sanctification in that struggle. You don't lose heart. And no one makes it. Okay, well, it's just that those are actually, the sacrament is the Latin translation of mysterion, which is the Greek word for sacrament. So what my point about it was, uh, I mean, there's a lot of points you can make with that. And I mean, one thing, too, is like, you know, that we're not minimalists. I mean, you're never going to be able to plumb all the depths of marriage. You know, and I think the better your marriage is, the more you know you've barely begun to plumb the depths of, of what marriage is. Um, but the specific thing I was saying in relation to that, though, is, you know, what is in the sacraments or in the mysteries, you take that which is of the body and you humbly offer it to God and he takes from that and makes you know, a spiritual reality that's very powerful. And so as long as I leave it on the flesh, then I'm only, drink, I'm only drinking wine and, and eating bread instead of receiving the body of Christ. And I'm only dousing myself with water instead of dying to my sins and living with Christ. And I'm only having a good time with somebody I love as much as I know how to love than being an icon of Christ in the church. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do think so. And um, there's a fellow named Ryan Anderson who was one of the co-authors of a, of a book that was called something like In Defense of Marriage. Um, and it was, he's a Christian, but it was written from like a totally secular um, position because you know, they weren't preaching to the choir. And, and so, and one of the, he made basically that point, you know, is that um, by, by making, you know, like if marriage is about your closest relationship uh, with another adult and, you know, there needs to be something sexual about that, that, that belittles other love. And it makes it seem like, by not having a sexual relationship, you, you can't be fulfilled as, as, as a human being. Um, and that's just, you know, in one sense, I mean, 
you know, to be able to have every kind of love with the same person is amazing, right? You know, to, like some of you probably have read um, C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves. That might be what you're thinking of. You know, and there's like the love of friendship, the affection love, like within a family, uh, eros, the sexual love, and then agape. Um, you know, and to have all that with one person is an incredible gift. But, you know, that's why this thing about, you know, the, the monk, you know, the, the chaste monk who burns up earthly loves with divine love, you know, it's, you're sacrificing the smaller things for the very greatest. You're going the most directly towards God. You know, so um, you can have You can have what matters most <laughs> and, you know, give up a lot. You know, have you ever heard the expression, the, the, um, the good is the enemy of the best? You know, and so, and, and I think so to that degree, it's like if you're thinking like sex is the very best thing, um, even if you manage to have a very good relationship with your, your spouse and it, you're still missing out on the best thing which you can only have through this. I'm not sure if I answered your question or not, but okay. And then, Michael, I think you had a question. Okay, well, you know, there is a general principle of, you know, well, one is judgment starts in the house of the Lord, right? <laughs> so, you know, we need to look at our own hearts and live real love. Um, and, you know, if we started really living here um, with this joyful, self-sacrificing, life-giving love, um, I think that a lot of our questions would be answered, you know, because people can't ignore us. If we are living that way, they're either going to be converted or they're going to kill us. There's not going to be a whole lot of room in between. You know, because who lived the most like this, of course, is Jesus Christ. And they killed him. So, so I think we should live take the next step towards living like this. But then the other thing is like, you know, we, you're right. The, the church does not require people outside the church to live like they're living in the church. So, you know, we have gay and lesbian friends at, at the monastery. You know, they're, I mean, Calistoga has a very high gay and lesbian population. That's fine. They're our friends. They help us. But, you know, if they came to the monastery and said, we want to get married, well, you know, that's a line I can't cross. If they ask me to come to their wedding, in most, you know, I've, I know that's a, <laughs> a tough topic. But, 
you know, and I would say in the vast majority of cases, to me that would be clear I couldn't go. Um, because sometimes, sometimes the most loving thing I can do for somebody, you know, is to say, I love you and I'll do anything else for you, but I can't do that. But that's why we have to live this, because who's going to believe us if we're not living like this? Um, but talk to your priest when situations come up, because there's always going to be some sticky situations. You know, um, I was just telling somebody, we had a situation come up recently where there was a man who just decided he was a transgender woman and he wanted to come to the monastery to pray with us as a woman. And that could have gone either way depending what else might have been going on, you know. And I talked to my bishop. And thank God I'm not a bishop, <laughs> you know, and that I will never be a bishop. Glory to God, you know, those poor guys, pray for them, you know. But, um, you know, I, it is nice having people in authority over me so that I don't have to make all the huge decisions, you know. But when I'm in a situation where it's like, uh, uh, excuse me, um, let me go talk to my bishop and come back to you when it's like you can't, then, you know, you do the best you know how. But um, and if you mess up, you can still go forward, you know. Um, that's the wonderful thing about being a Christian, you know. While I'm here, I can always go, God, I, I screwed that up, and you know, whoever it was, you know, I said, I'm sorry, I did, I did that really bad, you know. Most people won't find it helpful to have a model of perfection because I'm not perfect. I don't need a model of perfection. I need a model of someone who can mess up big time <laughs> and go forward. You know. And we're going to mess up because we're, gonna, we're having questions asked of us that have never been asked of anybody before. <laughs> so we're going to mess up. But then it's how do we move forward and how do we sacrifice sacrificially love the other person. <laughs>